The talk you're about to listen to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. Uh, it's good to be it's good to be here with you guys. Um, yeah, made the drive in here from from Manhattan today, and uh, yeah, it's been a crazy crazy past year, I guess. Um, we moved, my family and I, so we can put that next slide up. This is my family. So, my daughters are one of the reasons why I'm really tired right now. <laughs> so, I have four-year-old twins. Um, that is, on the left is Zora, and in the middle there is Sahila, and they just started school, and life is crazy. Um, but we moved, to, we moved to the city, and that's my wife, Janae. Let me not forget her. <laughs> but we moved, we moved to the city up to New York um, in January to plant a church in the middle of Manhattan, in the well, Lower East Side, in the East Village area. And uh, launched, our church launched in uh, March, and so things have just been going. Things have been crazy. Um, but it's been good. It's been really good. And, been seeing God do some amazing things. I, um, I love being back in spaces like this. Uh, I used to be staffed with InterVarsity out in Los Angeles. So like I'm just used to college students, fall retreats, and I just love, I love being here. So I'm really excited for what God is wanting to do this weekend. Um, we're, gonna be, we're gonna be talking about some big stuff this weekend. So our, and our, that next slide you can go to. Our theme for this weekend is engaging God's kingdom mission. Engaging God's kingdom mission. And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot that we talk about over the course of the next few days. And I really just want to encourage you to, to really lean in and, and be attentive to what the Spirit of God wants to speak to you. Each one of you has come here and even by the very act of coming here, you're posturing yourself to say, I, I want to hear what God has to say. I wanna, I, I'm here because I want to set aside the distractions, and I want to be present to what God might want to say to me this weekend. And so I, I just want to encourage you to lean in, to be present, to really ask, God, what are you wanting to say to me tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, and how are you wanting me to take that and carry that back to camp? So uh, as we start this weekend, tonight I want to talk to you about something that's really going to frame the entirety of the weekend for us. Um, and so the talk, the, the title of our talk tonight, you can go to that next slide, it's called The Half Has Not Been Told. The Half Has Not Been Told. So let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, we are grateful to be here. So grateful to be here in your presence, God. We just want to acknowledge that you're with us. That as we gather here this weekend, Lord, that your presence is here. That your spirit is here. And Lord, we didn't leave campus. We didn't leave home. We didn't come 
all the way out here just to, just to hang out, just to sing some songs, just to hear some sermons, but we came that we might have an encounter with you, the true and living God. And so God, I ask that you would move around in this place tonight and this entire weekend. Would you blow the wind of your spirit over each one of these students? Jesus, would you walk through this room and touch our hearts, Lord, and ignite in us a passion for you and stir our affections for you? And Jesus, would you be exalted above every other name in this place? And so, Lord, to that end, I ask that you would move me out of the way so that Jesus might be all in all. Hide me behind your cross. And Lord, would you allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our redeemer in whom we trust. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So I once heard a quote that said, half the story isn't the whole story. Be careful with what you believe in. Now, the meaning of this quote isn't too difficult to decipher. You know, when we only have half the story, we don't have the full picture. And when we operate only having half the story, there can be unfortunate consequences. My daughters that I just talked to you about, they just recently turned four. And so right now, my wife, Janae, and I, are, we're in the thick of trying to teach them the importance of telling the whole truth. Because even at three, year, or three years old, four years old, they have already discovered that in certain situations, it can be to their advantage to only tell half the story. They get into a lot of trouble that way. But you know, on a more serious note, when we think about the things that are happening all across our country, when we think about the re-exposing of racial injustice to the resurgence of overt racism and xenophobia and bigotry of all kinds. We know, we know that one of the reasons we find ourselves in the situation that we're in is because when the story of America is told, it's often only told halfway. History books tell the story of those who quote unquote settled this land and built something out of nothing. They tell of our founding fathers who erected this great republic on Christian principles and values and forged the way for modern democracy to flourish in the world. But you see, there's another side to that story that's often not told. It's the story that's told by the blood of our Native American brothers and sisters that cries out to us from the ground. If walls could talk, it would be the story told by the walls of antebellum plantation homes and the branches of centuries-old trees whose branches still whisper of strange fruit singing in the southern breeze. It's the story told by border patrols, detention centers, internment camps, and overpopulated prisons. And we all know the damage that can be done when we're only told half. So as we enter into our time together this weekend, I want to pose to you a question for your consideration. 
What if the story that you and I have so often heard about Jesus is only half the story? What if the picture of the gospel that is painted in so many churches across America isn't the full picture? See, I grew up in church and I've been hearing about the gospel since I was probably three years old. I knew from an early age that I was a sinner and that I needed forgiveness. I knew that God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die for my sins and that by placing my faith and my trust in Jesus, I could have a personal relationship with God and be with him forever one day. Now, the news that God loved me and that God wanted a personal relationship with me, that news, that good news carried me throughout many storms, many trials in my childhood and even in my teenage years. But as I got to college, I started to ask some questions about that story that I had been told. I studied political science with a focus in international relations at the University of Chicago. And I began to study in depth about things like global humanitarian issues, violations of human rights, why wars break out between nations. We read books like The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. And so in addition to being immersed in all of this, thinking through all of these things, I was living in Southside Chicago. And I was confronted in a new way with the realities of that city, with the economic, uh, educational, racial inequities and disparities within that city. And I began to ask the question, God, where are you at in the midst of all of this? Where are you at in the midst of all of this? See, I knew that God loved me and that God wanted a relationship with me, but it seemed to me that that story had nothing to say to the massive amounts of brokenness that I was seeing all around me. And so what I really wanted to know was, is the gospel big enough for this? The question that I was asking was, is the good news good enough? Is it good enough? See, as a follower of Jesus who is a black man living in America, I, along with many others that I know, have had to ask myself this question over and over. When I think about being a 10-year-old boy and playing an innocent game of hide-and-seek with one of my friends on the street, chasing and trying to catch one of my white friends that lived down the street. And as I'm chasing him, one of our neighbors comes out of his house with a gun behind his back, and he asks my friend, is everything okay? I ask myself the question, is the gospel big enough for this? When I'm in high school and I get accused of stealing from a convenience store, a convenience store that I never stepped foot in, but I fit the description of somebody that was in there. And officers told me that I could never step foot back into that convenience store ever again. I asked myself the question, is the good news good enough? When I'm a graduate student at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California, and I get pulled over in South Pasadena, after being followed for 15, 20 minutes. And an officer, as soon as he gets out of his car, he comes up to my window and he says, whose car is this? And after harassing me, harassing me and questioning me over and over, he then accuses me of having the smell of alcohol all over me. I ask myself, Jesus, what do you have to say to this? 
See, some of you in here tonight are asking the same questions. You want to know what the gospel has to say to the massive amounts of brokenness that we see all around us. You want to know what the gospel has to say to issues of poverty and homelessness and mass incarceration and police brutality. You want to know what, what, what is the good news that speaks to sexual assault? What is the good news that speaks to the mistreatment of immigrants and refugees? You, you want to know those questions. But for some of us, the question is not so much about the colossal systemic issues, but we want to know if the gospel is big enough to fill the void that I feel deep inside of my own soul. Is the good news good enough to speak to the brokenness that exists within my own family? And so to begin interrogating these questions, it's only fitting that we go back to the beginning. Back to Genesis 1, where it is said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, scholars of literature, they note that most authors will give you signs and hints of where they intend to go with the whole story in the very beginning pages of the book. But these hints are often subtle. And we can often only pick up on them if we're reading through the proper lens. And so what I hope to do tonight is to give what might be, for many of you, a new lens through which to view and understand and grapple with the story of the gospel. So if y'all don't mind, I, I just want to teach for a few minutes. You, you okay with that? All right. So you may be familiar with the story, but if you're not, the Bible begins with the story of creation. Right? The very first words on the pages of Scripture are, in the beginning God created. So the biblical story starts by letting us in on something core about the identity of God, that God is a creator. That God is an artist who delights in beauty. That God is a sculptor who crafts masterpieces into existence. That God is an author who strings words together to write a compelling story. That God is an engineer who creates systems that run efficiently. And so in the first 25 verses of scripture, we get the story of how God created the world in all of its beauty speaking it into existence by the word of his power. But when we get to verse 26, God does something, he decides to do something a bit different from what has been done up to this point. And so I want to read Genesis 1, 26 for you, and it says these words, Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. So God had created many things up to this point, but it was not until the creation of humanity that something was created in the image of God. And so there's so much that can be said about what it means that we as human beings are created in the image of God. But what I want to 
point to tonight, what you need to fundamentally understand is that to be created in the image of God means that we were meant to be God's representatives on earth. And so in ancient times, let's take the Roman Empire, for example. In the Roman Empire, what would happen is when the the empire would go and conquer a new territory. When Caesar would go and conquer a new territory, the first thing that the emperor would do was they would erect a statue that would be placed in that new territory. So that everyone who was now part of that empire, who had never seen the emperor before, who had never seen Caesar before, would know from looking at that statue what Caesar looks like, and they would be reminded every time they look that Caesar now reigns here. That's what it was to be, have an image, an icon. That's what that word is. It's an icon. And so when Scripture talks about us being made in the image of God, part of what that means is that we are literally placed in the midst of creation to reflect to all of creation the rule and the character and the wisdom of God and to let all of creation know God reigns here. That as we look at one another and as we interact with the rest of creation, it is to, re, to be a reminder that God reigns here. And as we look at one another, we should see a glimpse of what God looks like. That, that is who we were meant to be. That is who we were created to be. And so after God created all these things and stepped back and looked over all of creation... God says, like an artist looking at a masterpiece, this is very good. This is very good. Now the phrase very good in the Hebrew, it's, it's an interesting phrase. It's the phrase tov mehod. And we translate it as very good, but a better translation of that phrase would be to say, forcefully good or powerfully good. Forcefully good or powerfully good. The Hebrew concept of goodness, it doesn't have to do so much with the intrinsic nature of an object, but it has to do with the ties, the relationships between things. So when God pronounces creation very good, it's as if God is saying that the relationship that existed between God and humanity is forcefully good. The relationship that existed between humanity and our own selves is forcefully good. The relationships that exist between us, that we have with one another, was forcefully good. The relationship that humanity had with the rest of the created order, forcefully good. The relationship that humanity would have with the systems and structures that govern us, forcefully good. All of these things, forcefully good. The ties and the relationships, good, beautiful, strong. This is the picture of creation. This picture of strong, forceful bonds of goodness existing in creation is what the Hebrew authors referred to as shalom. Now we know shalom as peace, but it refers to much more than just the absence of conflict or hostility. It has to do with all parties in any given relationship being enabled to flourish and thrive. So author Lisa Sharon Harper, she puts it this way. She says that the concept of shalom teaches us 
that we were created in relationship with God, with ourselves, with each other, with the rest of creation, and with the systems that govern us. What it means to be one who lives under the reign of God is to be connected with a forceful bond of love in all of these relationships. And so God gave humanity a particular vocation, a particular job within creation. We were created to reflect God's wisdom and God's character out into creation, wisely ruling God's creation with God, ensuring that the relationships that God had set in place, those things that he had deemed very good, we were supposed to make sure that those things maintained, remained very good. That was our role. When we were given dominion over all those things, God was saying, make sure that these things stay good and strong in their relationships with one another. Make sure, steward this well. I have made this very good, and I'm entrusting you as humanity to maintain this thing. But we know what happened. What happened is that humanity decided that we knew how to run God's good world better than God. We, we knew how to maintain goodness, and we didn't need God to tell us how to do it. And so we put ourselves on the throne. We said, God, we won't rule alongside of you. We're going to rule instead of you. And so we kicked, tried to kick God off the throne and said, let us take a seat here. And we decided that we were going to run God's world. And as soon as we decided to do that, everything started to crumble. Everything started to fall apart. The very good relationships that God had established immediately began to crumble. Husband and wife turned against one another. Humanity began hiding from God. In Genesis 4, brother turned against brother and we see the first murder. And so if the essence of creation is the presence of shalom, then we can say that the essence of sin is the disruption of shalom. It's the disruption of shalom. It's the thing, it's the force that entered the world through man's disobedience that begins to pull everything apart. Pulls us apart from God, pulls us apart from one another, pulls us apart from creation pulls us apart from the systems and structures that are meant to govern us well, pulls us apart even from our own very selves. So you and I don't have to look far to see what disrupted shalom looks like. We know disrupted shalom when we feel far from God. We know disrupted shalom when we struggle to view ourselves as worthy of love, acceptable and beautiful. We know disrupted shalom when divorce rips apart our families, when death snatches away loved ones. We know what disrupted shalom feels like. We know disrupted shalom when we see the bodies of Trayvon Martin and Philando Castile and Eric Garner slain in the streets. We know disrupted shalom when women have to cry out, me too. We know disrupted shalom when we hear that one in three black men between the ages of 18 and 35 are in the prison system. We live in a constant state of relational brokenness. 
Have any of you ever had to live in the same place with someone where the relationship just ain't right? Have you ever had to live in that sort of place? Maybe you've experienced it with a sibling or with your mom or your dad or with your roommate. Don't look at them right now if you got issues. <laughs> you know, one thing I've learned about myself through being married these years is how hard it is for me to function when there is relational rift between my wife and I. It's hard to function as we should when there's stuff that's there that's not dealt with, when we're not together as we should be. See, when there's relational tension, we can get easily depressed and frustrated and agitated and anxious. And we certainly don't have any rest. This is the state of the world in which we live. We live in a constant state of relational brokenness. See, God had every right to leave us to the mess that we made, to clean this whole thing up ourselves. Because the brokenness that we see in the world, all the rifts and the injustice and the oppression and all of that, that's on us. That's us trying to rule God's world instead of God and saying, God, we don't need you. We don't need your wisdom. We don't need you to speak into this thing. We've got it. And so God had every right to leave us to that, clean it up yourselves. But see, God chose to step in. See, I don't know if you know this, but some of the sweetest words ever uttered in all of Scripture are those two words, but God. See, in Ephesians 2, after the Apostle Paul describes humanity's bondage to sin, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See, that God set out to fix the relational brokenness of our world. Some of you have had those but God moments in your own life. That moment when you were headed in the wrong direction, making wrong choices, but God stepped in and changed the trajectory of your life. That moment when you were sinking so deep into despair and it seemed like you had no way of escape, but God pulled you out of the pit and he placed your feet on solid ground. I'm so glad that we have a but God kind of God. So in Genesis 12, God called a man named Abraham and he made a covenant with him and a promise that he was going to make Abraham into a great nation and that through Abraham's seed, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. This nation that God birthed through the calling of Abraham was the nation of Israel. And God's purpose in calling and choosing Israel was in order that they might be the conduit through whom God's plan of restoration and salvation and liberation would move forward. But throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we're told that God's calling and choosing of Israel, his plan of restoration was always meant to have its ultimate climax and its ultimate fulfillment in one person, in one Israelite. The Hebrew prophets referred to this one as the servant of the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah. We call him Jesus. 
The one whom being fully God and fully human completely embodied the mission of God to restore all of this relational brokenness. And so if we know that the essence of sin is the disruption of shalom, we can say that the mission of Jesus is the restoration of shalom. See, in Luke 4, when Jesus is just entering into his public ministry, he stands up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah and begins to read from Isaiah chapter 61, these words that we've come to call his mission statement. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after he reads those words, he rolls up the scroll, and then like the boss that Jesus is, he looks out at everybody in the crowd, and he says, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. I would have loved to have been there. But everybody in that room just had chills run through them when Jesus said that. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because you got to understand, they, they had heard that scripture read by mom and dad and grandpa and grandpa and uncle and auntie for years and years and years. It was generations that would read that scripture that would talk about how one day the Messiah is going to come. One day God's servant is going to come and he's going to bring all of this that he's promised. And Jesus says, it's here today. Can you imagine the feeling in that room? See, to understand how hard that hits for them, you have to understand something about the context into which Jesus was speaking. See, the children of Israel have been waiting for thousands of years for God's Messiah to show up, for rescue to take place. Their entire history have been filled with slavery, exile, being stripped from their own land, mothers watching their sons being taken into captivity, fathers having to watch their daughters and their wives be sexually assaulted and raped by their enemies. And they were tired of it. That's why you read through the Psalms and you read Psalms that cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? That's why you read through the book of Lamentations and there's only one glimmer of hope in the whole book. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. But in the midst of that whole book, it's why is all of this happening, God? We have no answer. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. God, how long, O Lord? They were tired of it. And currently at the time when Jesus stepped on the scene, they lived under Roman occupation and oppression, being unjustly taxed by the Roman Empire. The poor were just getting poorer because Rome was levying unjust taxes in order to build their cities. And so when Jesus opens up Isaiah 61 and he reads those words, today this is fulfilled, he was saying in so many words, I'm getting ready to bring it all to an end. I'm bringing it all to an end. 
But see, over the years, when people have read the mission statement of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, many have asked the question, when Jesus talks about the poor, is he talking about those who are actually poor and oppressed, or is he talking about something strictly spiritual? Is this spiritual or is this social? Is Jesus concerned about my soul or is he concerned about society? The answer to that question is yes. It's yes. See, Jesus' mission had everything to do with those of us, all of us, who are spiritually poor and in need of receiving the riches of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It had everything to do with opening our eyes to behold the beauty and the splendor and the glory and the majesty of God. It had everything to do with releasing us from the heavy burdens that we carry within our own souls and giving us freedom beyond comparison for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But you better believe that when Jesus said those words, when he said that he came to preach good news to the poor, he was talking about those who were actually poor. He was talking about those who were actually oppressed. Jesus has come to preach good news to those who have lived their entire lives under the weight of unjust systems. See, that's the context in which Jesus was speaking. That was his people. That was the word that he was giving them. That was part of it. And so if the gospel that we preach is not good news to the poor, then it's not good news at all. If the gospel that we preach is not good news to the poor, then it's not good news at all. See, I love what Bishop Desmond Tutu said about this, the bishop who worked tirelessly to dismantle the system of apartheid in South Africa. He said, I don't preach a social gospel. I preach the gospel, period. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned, listen to this, with the whole person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is concerned for the whole person. When people are hungry, Jesus didn't say, now is that political or social? He said, I feed you, because the good news to a hungry person is bread. Let me teach you a little something. When Jesus says in Luke 4 that he has been sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, it's a reference to something in the book of Leviticus called the year of Jubilee. See, God wrote into Israel's law that every 50th year was meant to be a Jubilee year. That meant that all farming was to stop so that the land could rest and be replenished. It meant that all land would have to be returned to its original ownership. It meant that all debt was going to be forgiven. Some of y'all with loans are like, can we, can we see that? I know I want that. <laughs> and it meant that all slaves would be free. And this was to ensure that there would never be any permanent underclass of citizens in Israel. That there was something embedded within the law of God to say that there can never be perpetual poor in Israel. There can never be those who are being perpetually oppressed in Israel. Because that's not God's heart. That's not the way that God desired to set things up. Israel, there is no record of Israel 
ever keeping the year of Jubilee. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that because of what power does. But see, everyone knew that the year of Jubilee was just a a signpost, that it was pointing forward to something. It was pointing forward to a day when there would be ultimate Jubilee, a day when God would bring a final reordering and restoration of society at large. That's why you hear Jesus talk about stuff, what he says, the last will be first, the first will be last. You hear him say stuff like that all the time. He's talking about this jubilee thing, this ultimate reordering and restoring of things. So when Jesus stood up and read those words from Isaiah 61, he was saying, ultimate jubilee has arrived in me. So if I can make it plain for you, Jesus was saying that his mission was the restoration of everything in society that had been broken, from the personal to the structural from the individual to the systemic, from the spiritual to the social. Nothing in all of God's creation is outside of the scope of God's plan of restoration. Nothing in all of creation is outside of the scope of God's plan of restoration. That's why when Jesus stepped on the scene, the first words that he utters in the Gospel of Mark are the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The government of God is here. The reign of God is here. So get on board and believe in this good news. That was what Jesus was coming to do. So knowing that his mission was the restoration of everything, somehow Jesus ended up on a cross. There's a lot of reasons for that, that we don't have time to talk about all of them tonight. There's a lot I could say about the cross and what happened on the cross on that first Good Friday. The cross and the resurrection being the centerpiece of our faith. But what I want to talk about tonight is that on the cross, Jesus went toe-to-toe with death. See, death is the biggest break in relationship that occurred when sin entered the world. As the Apostle Paul said, through one human, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all humanity for all have sinned. See, death is nothing but a break in relationship with life itself. Death is the strongest weapon that the enemies of hell and the empires of this world have to throw at us. So on the cross, Jesus went toe-to-toe with death. On the cross, Jesus looked death square in the eye and said, bring it on. And so as they used to say in the black church on that Good Friday, they hung him high and they stretched him wide and they nailed him to a tree. And in six hours, Jesus hung his head and he died. And on Friday, he stayed dead. And on Saturday, he stayed dead. But early Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, before the sun cracked the sky, our Savior got up, 
with all power and all authority in his hands. And that stone was rolled away and Jesus, he stepped out of the grave and he proclaimed that new creation is underway, that death will not have the last word, that separation from God will not last forever, that injustice, hatred, and violence will not have the last word. And so when Jesus stepped out of that grave, it was God's signal to the world that new creation was here, that Operation Restore Shalom was underway. That was the signal, the sign of the resurrection, that God's plan for the restoration of all things is moving forward, and that no power of hell, no scheme of the enemy, no scheme of humanity, no corrupt government, no nothing, not even death itself, could stop it. And so the question, the question is for you, for me, for all of us is what does this mean? What does this mean for us? See, the first phase of Operation Restore Shalom was the restoration of our relationship with God. Because, see, God knows that if we can be restored back to right, proper relationship with him, then we can be restored back to what we were originally created to be. Those who work together with God to wisely govern and steward God's creation, making sure that all of the very good relationships remain. But see, in the midst of a broken world, this means that when we say yes to Jesus, when we sign up to partner with Jesus in this kingdom work, we are saying, Jesus, I'm stepping into the work of restoring the brokenness with you. I'm signing up to step into the places where everybody else wants to run from. I'm signing up to step into the chasms of our world, the divisions of our world, the hard places of our world, and proclaim there that even here Jesus is Lord. See, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us and trusted us the ministry of reconciliation. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way. He says, we are put right with God in order to be God's putting right people for the world. We are put right with God in order to be God's putting right people for the world. See, the reason that we do the work of evangelism, that you go out on campus and you share the gospel in your dorms and on the quad or wherever you're at, and you call people to follow Jesus, the reason that we do that is because we're inviting people to take their place in this great story. To invite people to be restored back to God and in being restored back to God, to be restored back to who they were originally created to be. The reason that we seek justice and correct oppression is because injustice and oppression are a direct affront to the shalom of God and the lordship of Jesus. That's the reason that we do what we do, that we step into these places, because we are people who have confessed that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, if he is reigning over all, and if one day he is going to bring his kingdom in, his, in fullness, 
then who we are as the people of God, as the church, is that we are called to be the advanced sign of what is going to come in fullness one day. That when people experience the people of God, they should experience a glimpse, a glimmer of God's kingdom, of God's shalom. They should get a taste of it. They should get a taste of God's love, a taste of God's goodness, a taste of God's peace, a taste of God's justice. And so we step into those places that are broken, that are falling apart. And we say, Jesus, you're a Lord. Can you bring your shalom here? And just like Jesus suspended his body between heaven and earth to heal the divide that existed between us and God, we are then released into the world with the power of the Spirit of God to then lay ourselves down in the broken places of the world to say, can reconciliation happen here? That's who we are. That's what we've been called to. That's what it means to engage the kingdom mission of God. And so as we enter this weekend together, and as we talk about these big, massive things like the kingdom of God, understand that this story is far bigger than just you. But also understand that this story includes you. That you are part of this story that God has a place for you in this narrative. And so I want you to lean in and listen and ask the question, God, what is my role in this story? What part do I play in this narrative? And listen to the Spirit of God as he begins to write and show you what your part is. Because it's beautiful. It's glorious and it will blow your mind. So I'm excited for what God is going to do in you all and through you all on your campuses and as you go away from campus into the rest of the world. God's put his spirit within you to be people who will bring his kingdom wherever you go. And so to that I say thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have called broken people like us. That you have called people who are, we've we've got so many of our own issues. But you've called us to yourself. You tell us that you love us. You bring us into your embrace. You adopt us into your family. You make us sons and daughters, and as sons and daughters, you entrust us with the family business of being shalom makers in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. God, I pray that you would raise up people in this room who would be about your kingdom above everything else, who would be passionate about seeing your shalom break into the places where there is no peace. That we wouldn't shy away from it, but that filled with your spirit, God, we would move where you tell us to move. Go where you're calling us to go. 
and point to something that is coming. That Jesus, when you come back, you will finally complete the work of making all things new. But we join in that work right now. Lord, I pray that each student in here would start to just get a little glimpse this weekend of what it is that you're calling them to, how you're calling them to participate in this great and beautiful and glorious story. We thank you, God, for the privilege. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The talk you have just listened to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. Crew is a community where the gospel captures hearts, transforms lives, and launches men and women into a lifelong adventure with Jesus Christ. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. That's PennStateCRU.org. This talk is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. You are free to copy and distribute this talk to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.